Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, why is cutting turf so bad for the environment? Minister for the Environment Eamon Ryan has proposed a ban on the sale and distribution of turf as a way to tackle the damaging effects of cutting and burning this source of fuel. The government has said the plan is targeted at stopping the large-scale commercial stripping of bogs for profit. Although there's concern among those who have their own small piece of bog that they cut themselves, the proposal aims to leave what are known as turbery rights intact, allowing people to dig, cut and take the turf to their own homes for burning. The controversy around this plan has threatened to stall it, but environmental experts have stressed that action must be taken now to stop the damage done by turf cutting and to allow the country's bogs to thrive again. Joining me today to explain everything about bogs and their role in Ireland's climate action plans is Dr Ray Flynn, Senior Lecturer in the School of Natural and Built Environment at Queen's University Belfast. Ray, thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem, Michelle. Glad to be here. Let's start with a bit of Turf 101 for those of us who last learned about a bog back in our secondary school geography lessons. How are they formed? Well, in one level, it's actually really quite straightforward. Um, what makes up turf is partially decayed vegetation, you know, and that's all across Ireland. And that vegetation basically has, it, it's there because it hasn't decayed fast enough. In other words, it is decomposing, but the plants that make it up are actually growing more quickly. So if you will, we basically got something where we've got the vegetation accumulating faster. In other words, we're getting these layers upon layers of vegetation and the stuff that's underneath just can't decay at the same rate. It's decaying at a slower rate. So that might sound all very straightforward, but it's, you know, if you think about this on another level, nature is very efficient at breaking down vegetation. Think about the leaves that fall off the trees in the autumn, for example, by the next spring, they're all gone and that. And really, you know, once you have vegetation or dead vegetation, organic matter, and you've got oxygen, the, the process is actually quite quick. And the thing that made them accumulate in the first place was that they became waterlogged. And this prevented the oxygen from getting in at the vegetation and decomposing. So the peat decomposed at a much slower rate. And so over thousands of years, we've basically got these bogs accumulating. Now, they would have started off in little waterlogged hollows um, or in some cases, some very big waterlogged areas. And essentially, that vegetation started to accumulate with time. And so if you were to go back to the Irish Midlands, let's say about 8000 years ago, you would see immense lakes. Now, you think the lakes on the Shannon are big at the moment. They are nothing compared to what would have been there in the past. And those lakes with time have filled up with vegetation to give what we call raised bogs. And they would, would have dominated the Irish Midlands right up until the middle of the 20th century. And then the other area that, you know, I'm from Dublin as well, that I'm familiar with where I see bogs is up in the mountains. And there what we've got are called blanket bogs. And they would have start. most of those would have formed again, starting at about 8,000 years ago. And again, it's that waterlogging process. You've got the water coming in, preventing the oxygen from getting down to the partially decayed vegetation to decompose it further. And so in the end, essentially what you get are these layers of partially decayed vegetation with a living layer of vegetation on the top. And there really are bogs that we have right across Ireland. And so how long does it take to form? I mean, if we're talking about growth in terms of centimetres or, or inches, how long is that taking? Sure. Well, look, it varies from one place to another, but we use a rule of thumb. We'd say probably about a millimetre a year if everything 
is is suitable if you will now clearly there are some places now where we have peat that's decomposing rather than accumulating but i suppose we can come back to that later on but mainly what we've got here is we've we have a rule of thumb where we're saying look it's about a millimeter a year so if you want to think of it um when we go out we would come across let's say eight meters of peat for example that would be eight thousand years that it would have taken to accumulate now having said that we have other, some locations where the peat is considerably thicker and then we have other locations where it's thinner now that can it can be thinner because it's only started to accumulate there more recently or alternatively it hasn't accumulated at the same rate and then there are some locations i think the thickest one i know of is about 17 meters here in northern ireland and clearly that didn't accumulate at a millimeter a year because seventeen thousand years ago ireland was under ice but you know if you go with that one millimeter per year that's that's a pretty reasonable approximation and if we look at a map of ireland how much of it is actually covered in bog that's a that's a very good question and somewhat debatable because you have to ask yourself where does bog begin and where does it end and generally speaking you you'll have different views on this until relatively recently we said where we had peat or that partially decayed vegetation if you like once that was thicker than 40 or 50 centimeters then basically you, you that we considered that as being bog of some form or other if you go with that figure now this can this has continually been revised but between a fifth and a sixth of the land cover of ireland is basically well would have been underlain by bog at some stage or other and really when you go further west that proportion gets higher and higher so how unique an environment is is a bog yeah really um they're really quite special and uh they've been um they've been studied for quite some time by by scientists um from various disciplines i might add but essentially what you've got in a bog is you've got as i said this layer of partially decomposed vegetation and it's very well it's soft it's um and that's where we get the word bog from it's bog in irish so you've got this very soft material and there's some of the properties of this are really quite remarkable and the one that i often point out to people is the water content bogs hold an immense amount of water if you were to take um let's say a cubic meter of bog which is a thousand liters probably of the order of five percent of that of 50 liters would be organic matter um so it, essentially the rest is water to get a better appreciation of that if you if you're out and you pick up a fresh piece of peat now not something that's been cut and dried but something that's fresh you squeeze that you will just see huge amounts of water coming out of this now the other things that are quite sort of unusual about it are for example the, the water chemistry bogs are very very um they, they're, they're very mineral poor and really the the plants that grow on bogs like more or less get all of their nutrients from rainfall and so it's very very specialized from an ecological point of view as well and if we change the conditions particularly if we change the regime of the water on the bog we can see this reflected in changes in vegetation as well and those plants that typically would accumulate the peat notably the the sphagnum mosses amongst others but they would be the main ones they basically can't survive and we lose what we call our peat accumulating capacity on the bog and so the bog stops 
basically accumulating peat and in a lot of cases it starts to decompose more rapidly. And when we talk about the bogs that we have at the moment, how much of a decline is that on, on what we had? How much have we lost? Oh, a very, very large amount. Now, if you remember at the start, I talked about raised bogs and blanket bogs. And if we consider this whole issue of peat accumulating capacity, in other words, the ability to accumulate um, the peat that forms turf that a lot of people would be familiar with, that we did a we did a survey some years ago for National Parks and Wildlife Service, and we took a look at this, and we basically looked at those areas that are protected, in other words, um, special areas of conservation and national 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 heritage areas, which would have the highest proportions of peat accumulating vegetation. And what we found is that we have less than zero point five percent, so one two less than one two hundredth of the original coverage is basically still it's still there um, accumulating peat. So there's been a lot of damage. Now, people will see if they drive around the country that there are actually quite large areas of peatland that are still uncut, if you will, what we would call the high bog. Um, but a lot of these have lost their peat accumulating capacity and they're slowly decomposing. And that has a number of implications, uh, particularly environmentally, in terms of what they're doing to the wider environment. Now, for the blanket bogs, those upland areas, again, you know, the coverage from blanket bogs is about twice that of the raised bogs. But what we're seeing there as well, when we look in detail, virtually everywhere that we look, even in the most remote of settings, what we're seeing is we're seeing drains, we're seeing evidence of burning or overgrazing forestry, roads being cut into them, etc. And so, unfortunately, the Irish bogs are not in a good way at the moment. So how important are they environmentally for Ireland? I mean, what goods are they delivering, I suppose? Well, it, we can look at this at a number of levels. We talk about something called ecosystem services. So these are the things we get from nature for free, if you like. Now, some of these are pretty difficult to value. So I hear people talking about the inspiration that a bog has given them. For example, Seamus Heaney writes about bogs in his poetry, for example. It's very hard to actually put a value on that. On the other hand, the value of some other things are really quite tangible. Um, and they can be things like, for example, turf as fuel. Um, we have prices for that. Um, we can also look at peat, for example. Um, as a as a horticultural medium, so there's a price on that, and they're both what we would call extractive. We're basically taking stuff off the bog, or take you know, if you will, mining the bog, to to obtain those. On the other hand, you also have um, you have ecosystem services that the bog would provide anyway in in terms of what it does for water, what it does for the for for air, etc. We've been looking at this in a bit more detail. And what we see, for example, is that where we have the decomposition of peat, in other words, we've lost what I, what I mentioned earlier, the peat accumulating capacity, we see that water quality begins to degrade. So people who go for walks in upland areas, particularly those that are covered in, uh, or have peat in that area, will notice that the streams often have a color, a brown color. And this is, this is pretty widespread and always has been there. If one only has to look around the country, for the number of places that are called Owen Row or Owen Duff, you know, brown water or black water, where that would have been the case in the past. But what we see is when the peat begins to get damaged, that water becomes more coloured. And that has a number of impacts, both on 
the the fauna and flora that are in the water that's receiving the runoff or the, the water from the bog but also for customers of let's say water companies what we'll see there is if we have to take that brown out of the water what we it's actually there's a scientific term which is color or dissolved organic carbon for some other people if we have to take that out that costs money and that costs a lot of money because not only do we have to take it out, we also have to get rid of the waste byproducts and we have to expend energy on doing that, etc. So there's a, an increased cost of water treatment. The other thing we see is when we damage peatlands, particularly in upland areas, when it rains, the water is lost much more quickly to rivers and streams. So we have an increase in flood risk as well. And again, that's something that has a value in terms of insurance premiums, etc. And then more recently something that we've become particularly aware of is when the peat is decomposing it's also essentially what it's doing is it's giving off greenhouse gases and they also have a value one only has to think about for example the carbon tax on on the cars that, that we drive that's basically in there to address our emissions and a significant part of our emissions in Ireland comes from the slow decomposition of peat, uh, peatlands. And then on top of that, we're burning the peat as well. And that's also giving giving rise to emissions as well. So, Ray, before you even get to the stage of burning the turf in a fire or, or wherever, there are impacts that you're mentioning there on the environment of just the draining, the, the cutting and the other processes around it before you even burn them. That is correct, yeah. Um, so, for example, as I mentioned, this change in water colour, color, this change in flood risk, and then <clears throat> impacts the biodiversity as well. That one's particularly difficult to value in some respects. Very often I'll meet people where they, you know, and I ask them, what is the value of a particular species in a, in a river or stream? And a lot of people will say, look, we can't value that. Um, unfortunately for economics, that sort of puts us on the back foot in, in terms of sort of justifying uh, preservation, conservation, or restoration of peatlands. But, you know, one other way of looking at this is in terms of the fines that would come from not meeting legislative requirements. So, for example, in a, in a river or a stream, if we have sort of a degradation, if we have a loss of particular plants or animals, and they contribute to what we call the status of the stream, in other words, how it's regarded legally, there's an obligation to actually restore that status and that costs money. And then the other side of this is, as the Irish government are only too well aware, if we don't actually conserve our protected areas, we basically open up ourselves to fines from, for example, the European Commission. So there are ways of valuing biodiversity. I admit that they're not ideal, but it does begin to give us an idea of the environmental costs of basically of, of cutting peat for whatever use. And what are the, the positives that bogs are contributing to Ireland's environment? How do they capture carbon and how efficient are they at that? Bogs are extremely efficient at capturing carbon. They're, in fact, they're one of the most efficient mechanisms, are to, if you will. I'm sorry, I'm speaking as an engineer here. Um, they're one of the most efficient ecosystems um, for capturing carbon on the planet. And we have immense amounts of carbon stored in bogs now i have a figure here in front of me of uh, 415 gigatons of carbon stored in a bog that is a huge amount of carbon in fact bogs occupy about three percent 
of the world's, uh, world's land surface, yet they store more carbon than all of the forests on the planet. So that really gives you an idea of how important they are as a store of carbon. Now, needless to say, when we damage that, we begin to release that and um, release that carbon. Now, the thing that uh, for me that I find particularly fascinating is we have billions of tons of carbon stored in the bogs in Ireland here. Yet that really has only accumulated since the end of the last ice age and particularly in the last 8000 years. So right off the press about you know, well, last week, I was up with some colleagues and we managed to do a peat core um, on a blanket bog where we found nine and a half meters of peat. So for people who are not too familiar with bogs or whatever nine, uh, and live in cities, nine and a half meters is the basically about the height of a two story house that has accumulated at that particular location over the past 8000 years. So Ireland has been actually really quite important in taking carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it in the ground over over this time frame. And a turf fire people would be familiar with, it can be a lovely comforting thing, but how efficient is it actually as a way of heating your home? Look, it, it, this is this is potentially very contentious, um, you know, telling people to stop burning turf. It's it's a really tricky one because in a lot of places it's it, it's the it's the only it was and in some cases still is the only fuel available to people so it's you know it's better than nothing. If you had got a choice though, in terms of the uh, in terms of the energy efficiency, turf is not that efficient in terms of generating heat. Um, coal, um, which is really quite dirty, and gas would be far more efficient. Um, and we talk about something called calorific value and the calorific value, in other words, the amount of heat that we can get out of turf is considerably less than it would be from those two other energy sources. And how does it compare then in terms of the amount of pollution it produces? It depends what you're considering to be pollution. No matter what fossil fuel you're born, you're going to be generating carbon dioxide. So and peat would be generating a significant amount, in some cases more than coal. And then on top of that, you've got what we call particulates. You know, so those little tiny bits that don't burn fully and you know they're basically released into the atmosphere as well. And you see those floating about. Look, they're a problem. They um they affect people's health. You will get the same thing with coal, I would add. You know, if you don't burn coal completely, you're gonna have the same issues there. Less so with, with gas, for example, but you will also have it with the other fuels, for example, if you even think about diesel, for example, if you don't have a, a clean, a good diesel engine, you will be emitting particulates and carbon dioxide as well. So they're all pretty much in the same league in that respect. In terms of sort of the the impact on health, it really depends on really what you've got going on in your house as well. You know how good the circulation is, and that's if you don't if you don't have that smoke coming into your room, the impact on human health in the immediate vicinity will not be that great. Now, Ray, some people know only too well, and maybe some listeners also know the joys and possibly also the misery of cutting turf. Can you talk to us a bit about the culture of owning a patch of bog and cutting your own turf? Yeah, now, I, I, Michelle, I feel a bit of an imposter here. Like yourself, I'm from Dublin, so... <laughs> Um, How can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> but again, I, I have worked um, with people who cut turf and use it as their primary source of fuel. And uh, again, you know, there, there is a there is a culture about this. 
some of it is has been romanticized um oddly enough by by mainstream media in recent years where we have people cutting tough with the with the slain or the slan depending on what part of the country you come from this hand cutting is now extremely rare and most cutting is now done by machinery it's mechanized and the, the manual bit of this would be what's called footing where people would basically go and basically dry out the turf after it had been cut but the actual cutting by hand now is largely done by machine there's there's a number of mechan methods that can be used to extract turf the the crucial thing here with the machinery is that it's much quicker than hand cutting and also linked with that then people tend to eat the peat and that was something that in the past wouldn't have been that prevalent and by the fact that they can go deeper what that means is that the impact on the uncut part of the bog in terms of its hydrology and their ecology is much greater as well so there's, there's there's basically there's quite a bit of science behind that but again there's this whole issue of you know it, it's been going on for hundreds of years and people use this as their primary source of fuel and you know it's understandable that some people are reluctant to change they want to stick with what they know and particularly in more remote areas it's it, it it does seem a bit strange to people that they they've been told to stop cutting uh turf as fuel and to import fuel from elsewhere so can you talk to us a bit about the scale of the commercial operation here in ireland when did that first start to develop turf cutting on a commercial scale has been ongoing in fits and starts you know even before the turn of the 20th century there were ideas to basically harvest peat commercially across Ireland. And in fact, like the earliest one that I think I'm aware of goes back right to the time of the Napoleonic Wars when the British government sent the bog commissioners over with the idea that they were going to reclaim the bogs to grow linen. Um, that never came to anything, as you might imagine. In terms of what we're familiar with today, we had the establishment of Borden Mona in the 1930s but it really is in the 1950s that we see commercial peat extraction taking hold. And this really becomes something that's very, very mechanized. We have railways, we have all of this stuff is operating. Um, we're using peat for domestic fuel, for the electricity generation. And then following on from that, then we see peat being commercially extracted for things like horticulture. Um, so that would be your moss peats either for the, what they call the hobby sector, you know, people putting it in their garden, or for the commercial sector. And, you know, the commercial horticulture industry in particular parts of Ireland is really, really quite significant. You know, we're, we're talking hundreds of millions of euro a year, um, and that is largely based on the availability of good quality peat that's extracted from Irish bogs. This is, is, this is a very, very big multi, if you will, hundreds of millions of euro per year industry. And it not only employs people directly with extraction, but also people in what we would call related or ancillary industries that are supporting. And, you know, as somebody once said to me, one of the reasons why County Offaly had won so many All-Ireland Hurling Championships um, up until relatively recently was because they had basically a population based around turf extraction. Um, people who were working in, for example, Borden and Mona, and then the people who were supporting that as well. So, you know, we, we shouldn't view this in, a, in, in black and white terms. There's, there's, there's a very important social element to this as well, and economic, I would add. But how much damage has it actually done to the boglands? And I'm wondering as well, is there 
any way of doing it sustainably? Has it been done in any way that is sustainable? The amount of damage is really quite widespread. The largest, it without, you know, in Ireland we love superlatives, but one that I think is pretty valid here is the largest open cast mines in Western Europe are the bogs of Ireland. And if you don't believe me, just go on to something like Bing Maps or Google Earth and take a look at the satellite images of the Irish Midlands in particular, and you'll see all of these brown patch patches giving you an idea of the extent of peat extraction. Now, in terms of the damage that they've done, you know, looking at this purely in environmental terms, and for this I have to put the, the social and economic elements aside briefly, um, what we're seeing there is we're seeing impacts in terms of biodiversity. In other words, most of these areas have little to no biodiversity when they're operational. Linked with that, then again, you've got degradation in water quality, not only of the water in the bog, but that water's flowing off, going into rivers and lakes, etc. And then we've also got significantly elevated greenhouse gas emissions as well, to mention but a few. So they all have pretty significant impacts on the environment. Now, we've recognized that and there are moves afoot to basically implement what we would call restoration measures. In other words, we had bog, we damaged it. Can we get it back now? And in some respects, Irish researchers are leading the way with this. And in some respects, we're basically we're borrowing from research that's been done elsewhere across the planet. One area that's particularly interested are interesting is in Quebec, where and in Canada more generally, where they've actually started to grow the sphagnum moss that accumulates uh, that that's the peat accumulating vegetation in many many areas, and with that sphagnum moss, they're basically harvesting that and they're selling that as you know for for horticulture. So in that sense, it's a sustainable industry. We're basically, we're using the peat bogs to harvest. So what they've done in Quebec is essentially um, move from what we would call an extractive industry where they're mining the peat, they're taking it out and they're not replacing it with anything to a situation now where they're basically, they're harvesting on, an, uh, on a regular basis and then selling that as a crop, uh, if you will. So that's sustainable um, and there are moves afoot in Ireland to basically try and repeat that process. And then linked with that, then, of course, we have the whole process, the whole very large restoration program that's currently being undertaken by Borden Amona to restore um, very large areas. I have a figure here of about roughly 79,000 hectares of what was harvested and cut away bog. The, the objective now is to restore that to peat accumulating conditions. In my introduction, I mentioned the government's current plan to ban the sale and distribution of turf. But what's their overall strategy around this? I think the main thing that the government is striving to achieve here, particularly on the larger bugs, is to essentially get that peat accumulating capacity back. And the the work that's been undertaken by Borden Mona is a step in that direction. Then on the smaller bugs, we've got a number of issues here. The main one is for the protected areas that we we basically conserve the uh, the biodiversity in those protected areas. And again, we're coming back to this whole issue of water and essentially sort of controlling issues related that might actually damage peat accumulating capacity. Then on the on those areas that are not protected, this is perhaps a bit more contentious. Um, and you know, there's clearly a 
there's a feeling in, in certain sectors that we need to move away from using peat as a fuel, and that obviously has some conflict. Some some, some conflicts have arisen over that. But again, the idea there is essentially to sort of the if we can to start to scale back turf cutting where we can, and you know if people don't want to turf, cut, cut turf anymore, to look at other options for those areas. Now, there's a lot of stuff that's up in the air at the moment, and um, one of these things which um, I I find particularly interesting relates to what we would do with peatlands um, that are not the very big peatlands, for example, like those that have been restored by Borden and Mona. Can we come up with a mechanism to basically pay people to conserve or to restore peatlands um, on a small to medium scale? And this, in, this could be particularly interesting because in many of the areas where we have extensive peatland coverage, these, these have been historically economically disadvantaged areas. And what we then have is we have a mechanism, if we can come up with a financial or an economic mechanism to sort of support these areas, we're actually bringing income into an area. And at the same time, we're helping the environment. So really what I like about that sort of concept is that it's win-win. The people benefit and at the same time, the environment benefits as well. And how much do bogs form part of our overall climate goals? And I'm wondering as well how much of a difference it makes if we're looking at the wider global aims. For Ireland and for Great Britain, for that matter, uh, bogs are a particularly important element, bog restoration. We've recognised the capacity of peatlands to basically sequester carbon, or if you like, take carbon out of the atmosphere and more or less keep it out for a long period of time. And so we've basically got we've got something here. We've got an advantage on many other countries in terms of sort of meeting our climate goals in that we can use peatlands to help us get there. So what we have at the moment is we have very wide, we've very large areas that of peatland and bogs that are damaged and they are currently emitting. Now, if we can implement restoration programs effectively, not only do we stop the emissions, but what we also do is we actually get them to sequester. So instead of being, if you will, the bad guy in terms of emissions, they've become the good guy. They are helping us along the way to meet that goal. Is there any way to harvest turf at a community or household level sustainably? Is it realistic to continue to allow that to happen? We can use bugs sustainably in the sense that we can use them for purposes, for example, for horticulture, as I've mentioned already. But when you think about those accumulation rates, they're very, very low. And if we're looking at sustainability in a human lifetime, in other words, the amount of turf that I use is equivalent to the amount of turf that's developed. This really isn't feasible. Um, so unfortunately not. I, I, from my mind, I, I find it very hard to think of how we could have sustainable use of turf as a fuel. And essentially what we've been doing with turf over the centuries is mining it. In other words, we've been taking it out at a much faster rate than it accumulates. And here in Belfast, where I live now, we actually see an example of that in the uh, the Divis and Black Mountain area immediately to the north of the city, where as Belfast evolved during the industrial period, turf was a widely available fuel in Divis and Black Mountain in that area. And over the, the course of the early part of the 19th century, it was all essentially removed. And we now have a effectively a turf free area in that area where there would have been extensive bog coverage in the past. So it's just to, to answer your question more briefly, 
Tough cutting uh, for fuel is essentially mining the bog rather than using it sustainably. And how much time do we have left now, I suppose, to save Ireland's bogs? At what stage is it going to be too late? For, for many of the bogs, they are irre- irreparably damaged already. So even when we're talking about restoration, we're not talking about restoration back to bog anymore. There's been so much damage done that we're talking about if you will, rehabilitation to another habitat type that may be related. But, you know, we when we look at it, the other issue here is, of course, that we shouldn't actually view bogs in isolation. Bogs are very dependent upon the climate to actually have their have peat supporting conditions. And if we get longer, drier summers, this is a negative thing. And this is something that will impact on peats, uh, bogs capacities accumulate peat so that's going to be a challenge moving forward now there are some uncertainties associated with what those patterns will look like with climate change but i think the consensus at the moment is that what we're going to be seeing is longer drier summers and wetter winters and under those circumstances that's going to prove particularly challenging for peat accumulating vegetation and we may actually have a situation where we have bogs that under the current climatic conditions would be accumulating peak, but in the future we'll actually be releasing carbon if we have a change in the climate. Ray, I want to thank you for coming on. It, it's a really big, dense topic uh, and I think that there's there's so much in it to explain, so really appreciate you going through it all with us. Not at all. It was my pleasure. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer and thanks again to Ray for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan and my co-host Grani Nier. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>